0: Uh, before I begin, let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? Lord God, once again we come to uh, hear your word preached, and once again we don't want to leave this place not having been changed by it and by your Holy Spirit speaking to us through it. Lord, uh, indeed today we want to pray that you would give us new vision and a new, um, new burdens and new visions uh, for our work for you. Uh, in the future. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week I ran out of time and, and I didn't finish uh, the uh, chapter one. So I'd just like to quickly uh, uh, finish off chapter one before we move on to chapter two, which Andy just read to us. Um, in many ways, this prayer, at chapter one, is the foundation of the whole book. So it's worth spending a bit more time on it. So just to recap a little bit what I said last week. Firstly, I said that Nehemiah's prayer was a prayer that weeps. So in verse 4 of chapter 1, Nehemiah wept over the broken down walls and gates of Jerusalem, which had left the capital city and the temple of God defenceless and in disgrace. But he didn't weep just out of frustration and sadness. His weeping led to prayer and fasting. And as he was praying, he realised that he'd been living perhaps a comfortable life as cupbearer, to the king Artaxerxes, but he had failed to serve the true king, the God of heaven, all this time. And as he prayed, his heart his heart. was open to a new willingness to serve and to a new, comp- uh, new obedience. This led him, secondly, to a prayer that worships, O oh Lord, God of heaven, Nehemiah begins in verse five. He acknowledges God's character of faithfulness. He recalls the promises that God had made to his people in scripture, and calls on God to make good those promises. And his worship, as all good worship should, led him not only to confess his own sin and the sin of his family, but to confess the sins of the whole people of God, to identify with all those sins. His confession leads him in turn to remember that God is a God who redeems, who saves us from slavery, the slavery of sin, and who forgives us. So that today we come on to the fact that Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1 is a prayer that watches. Look at verse 6. It says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Notice that Nehemiah prays day and night. His prayer is 24-7. It's a prayer that keeps the watchers, if you like, the watchers of day, time and night time. I don't think this means, uh, literally, he was praying all the time. After all, he still had a job to do. He was serving King um, Artaxerxes. But prayer was constantly in his thoughts and on his lips, even when he was going about his business. Ephesians 6, uh, verse 18 says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And here in this prayer is Nehemiah, alert, praying continually, day and night, for all the saints, or as he puts it, for all the people of Israel in Jerusalem. You see, he may be far away, but he works in prayer on their behalf. He intercedes for them. And this is where prayer really is work. Sometimes it's the hardest work of all that we're called to do. It takes a really special kind of mindset to make prayer that watches day and night, praise continually. In the 19th century, there was a, there's a man called George Muller who managed to house and educate over 23,000 children over time. In 1871, he was running five orphanages in the Bristol area, capable of housing over 2,000 and educating 2,000 children at any one time. And all of this was achieved in the 19th century without ever asking for any money or without ever going into debt. It's said that one day he had all 2,000 children sat down for breakfast at the table and he knew that he had no food to give them, absolutely no food. So he prayed, he gave thanks to God, he said grace and at that moment there was a knock on the door and a baker arrived with enough bread to give to all the children. The orphanages were run entirely by faith and the organisation is still going today. When asked how much time he spent in prayer, George Muller's reply was hours, hours every day. But I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk and when I lie down and when I rise. And the answers are always coming. You can tell that Nehemiah was like like that. Because when his opportunity came to speak to the king in chapter 2 and verse 4, the first thing he does is to continue that conversation he'd been having with, with God day and night as he kept his watches in prayer. He was asked by the king, What is it you want? And before replying, he, pray, he prays to heaven. It became completely natural to him. When the opportunity came, his reflex reaction was not to speak, but to pray. Now, I wonder what our reflex reaction would be when faced by a similar sudden opportunity or perhaps a sudden problem? Would we, like Nehemiah, jump straight to prayer? Are we kind of people who who use the points of prayer in the green sheet or get the letters of the mission partners? Is prayer such an ingrained habit within us that day and night we pray whatever we are doing? And when a need suddenly arises, we just continue that conversation with God. Or are we the type of people who just tend to uh, speak first and uh, rely on our own skills and organisation? Speak first, pray later. You know, someone said, when we rely on organisation, we get what organisation can do. When we rely on education, we get what education can do. When we rely on eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. And so on. And nor am I disposed to undervalue any of these things in their proper place, he says. But when we rely on prayer, we get what God can do. Nehemiah's prayer was a prayer that watches. He was a great leader, he was a great organiser. But he wanted to get what God could do. Finally for chapter 1, Nehemiah's prayer is a prayer that waits. Nehemiah had first heard about the state of the walls in Jerusalem, in the month of Kislev, that's November or December of the year 445 BC. That's in verse 1, chapter 1. And his prayer from the outset, see verse 11, was give your servant success today. Give your servant success today. You see, Nehemiah wanted things to happen. He wanted them to happen today, straight away. But that doesn't mean that he was impatient. It was not until the month of Nisan, March, four months after Kislev, that Nehemiah received his first opportunity to speak to the king about his city. And during those four months, nothing at all has happened in terms of the circumstances of the walls in Jerusalem. But during those four months, Nehemiah's heart had been changed completely. His was a prayer that changed his character. His was a prayer that waited until God had made him ready. Now, one reason he could do this was because his prayer included worship. His mind was fixed on God. And he knew that it wasn't down to him or even down to King Artaxerxes when his prayer should be answered. The king was the most powerful man in the world at that time. But before God, to Nehemiah, he was just a man. Have a look at verse 11. Nehemiah prays, give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. Not in the presence of King Artaxerxes, not in the presence of the most powerful man in the world, but in the presence of this man. It's a prayer that cuts the king down to size. You see, Nehemiah knew that God was in control. As Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. God would decide if and when the walls got rebuilt. He is in control of all things.. <coughs> Does our prayer wait on God? Or do we give up too early because we think the situation is too serious, too demanding, too demanding, or simply outside of His control. Who do we think will say yes or no to our plans? Is it the local authority? or our employer, is it the bank or the charity commission, is it the rector or the church council? I tell you, if our concern is God's concern, then no man, no man, even King Artaxerxes can stand in our way if we wait on God in prayer. So that was last week's sermon. This is this week's. (laughs) Chapter 2. Where does the foundation of this prayer lead Nehemiah? Well, firstly, Nehemiah has a vision from God. In chapter 1 and verse 3, Nehemiah didn't have a vision. All he had was a burden. He had an awareness of a bad situation. He said, the walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. But after four months of prayer and fasting, Nehemiah had a vision. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. If it pleases the Lord, it pleases the king. And if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. You see, there's Nehemiah's vision, put plainly and simply. When the king asks, what is it you want, is ready with an answer. But you see, I don't think he would have been ready four months earlier, when he was still stuck in his comfortable lifestyle as cupbearer to the king, and Jerusalem was out of sight and out of mind. But now, after four months of prayer, God has planted that vision firmly in Nehemiah's heart. So vision starts with a burden. It starts with a deep dissatisfaction with the way that things are. And then it develops with prayer into a clear view of how things could be. You may have heard the old King James version of Proverbs 29, verse 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. The modern versions have a slightly different emphasis, but it's still true that all Christian leaders need to have a vision. If we're to be motivated and energized and excited about what we're doing, we need to have a vision. And we're all leaders, aren't we? We're all leaders. And just because vision sounds like a sort of grandiose word and has been hijacked by the management consultants, it doesn't mean that each one of us, in our different ways, can't have a vision. You can have a vision for your home. Perhaps you want your home to be a place of hospitality and welcome. Perhaps you have a vision for your Christian witness at work or for your area of ministry here in church in your children's group or youth work or whatever it is you help with. Or perhaps you have a vision to build community in the locality. Perhaps you feel you have no vision, but you have a burden, a burden on your heart. Well, why don't you ask God, in prayer, to make that burden into a vision? And let's see what God can then do through you. But secondly, Nehemiah knows that he has been sent by God. Remember, Nehemiah never relied on his own organisational skills to get what he wanted. Nehemiah may have had a vision, but it was equally important to him to know that they've been sent by God. Look down at verse 4 in chapter 2 and see the sequence of events. An opportunity comes. What is it you want, says the king? Then there's the prayer. And only then does Nehemiah put his request to the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me. And finally in verse 6, king grants the request. It pleased the king to send me. Now, humanly speaking, it might be King Artaxerxes who sends Nehemiah. It's also King Artaxerxes who supplies Nehemiah with the letters of self-conduct, safe conduct, in verses 7. It's also King Artaxerxes who supplies Nehemiah with the wood to rebuild the walls, in verse 8. But Nehemiah firmly believes that he has been sent by God. Look at verse 8. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, The king granted my requests. It's a message that he repeats again in verse 18 to the Jews. He says, I also told them about the gracious hand of God upon me. So here is a gracious hand that guides and leads. It's a bit like when I want to steer my son through a crowd in the shops or something like that. I put my hand on his head and I twist him one way or another (laughs) until we reach the place that we need to go. One day I'd be too tall to do that, I guess, and it won't work. What does it mean to know that you have been sent by God? Will it be good to ask any one of our mission partners at this point? And I, we have a few in the, uh, the congregation this evening. When the times get tough, or the work appears fruitless, and you can't think of any obvious results to send, uh, tell the supporters back home, I'm sure then it's important to know that you've been sent by God. That certainly was the case when I worked with international students in Spain for a couple of years. Many a time I felt uh, this is pretty senseless. Why am I spending my time going around putting posters in bars in Spain, getting people to come to Bible studies? But I hung on to that sense that I've been called, I've been sent to God to go out and do that work. And over that time some people did become Christians and many were supported and built up in their faith. And even now, when I'm tired and it's six o'clock on a Friday evening and the children are fractious and the sermon's still not written and it's time to go out and and to help with big fish, it's good to know that I've been sent by God. And I'm sure that some of you feel that way as well when you're preparing things for church. Thirdly, Nehemiah has no need to lord it over them. Verse 9 tells us that Nehemiah was accompanied by army officers and cavalry on his journey to Jerusalem. In fact, we know from other sources that King Artaxerxes had not only sent Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls, he'd also made him governor of Judah. So he could have marched straight into Jerusalem, called a meeting and said, Listen here, you chaps, you've left this city in utter disgrace. What have you been thinking of all this time? It's a good thing that I've been sent here to sort you chaps out now here's my authority, here's my plan, you are going to rebuild the walls. It would have been easy, wouldn't it? The temptation would have been almost overwhelming to do that in his position with his power and with his authority. Perhaps even more so after he'd been out on that nighttime uh, ride around the city walls to view the wreckage with his own eyes. Verses 14 and 15 tell us the devastation was far worse than he expected. He couldn't even get his mount, his horse, or his, uh, his donkey through the valley floor, because there's so much rubble left there. That's after 140 years. And wouldn't you have felt angry and frustrated? 90 years before, 50,000 people had returned from exile, and they'd left the walls exactly as they'd been. So what does Nehemiah do? In verse 17, he addresses the crowd in the town square. And he says, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Does he lord it over them? Margaret Thatcher once said Being powerful is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. <laughs> Nehemiah doesn't need to lord it over them because he identifies himself with the disgrace that the city is in. Do you remember back in chapter 1 again, in that prayer, he confessed the sins, not only of himself and his family, but of the whole nation. He spent four months or more identifying himself with their sins and with their situation. And that's why, when he arrives in Jerusalem, he can say, you see the trouble we are in. If we rebuild the walls, then we will no longer be in that disgrace. He feels their pain. He feels their disgrace. He puts the vision before them and assures them that God's hand is behind it. And they reply, let us start rebuilding. And they begin the good work. Yes, they knew that Nehemiah was the king's representative. Yes, Nehemiah had power and authority. Nehemiah tells them as such he tells them what the king had said in verse 18 but as you read this book of Nehemiah you get the impression that the majority were willing participants in the rebuilding of the walls they were volunteers you can't lord it over them you can't say do this or else what they needed to know from Nehemiah was that he identified with their plights he had a vision to get things done and that the Lord's hand was upon them And they were happy to get on with it. Fourthly and finally, he could stand, withstand opposition. You know, a Christian, an individual Christian, or a church with no vision and no sense of being sent by God is never going to face any opposition. Satan doesn't mind people who never try to change anything. Satan doesn't mind us all meeting together and having a nice social club. In contrast, Nehemiah faced opposition straight away. Verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? (coughs) Note this. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem were all subjects of King Artaxerxes, They knew that the king had supported his work, Nehemiah's work. As Nehemiah travelled from Susa to Jerusalem, he would have passed through Samaria and had to give his letter of self-conduct, safe conduct, to Sambalat or one of his representatives. They knew that King Artaxerxes had sent Nehemiah. But they should have been on the same side. More than that, Sambalat and Tobiah were both worshippers of God. They should have supported the defence of the temple. But you see, their religion had devi- deviated from pure Judaism during the exiles. The Samaritans no longer believed that God should be worshipped on Mount Zion. They worshipped him on Mount Helizim. That's why Nehemiah tells them in verse 20 that they have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And it's often true, isn't it, that the stiffest opposition comes to us from those people who are close to us. Somehow, closeness leads to the strongest disputes. William Wilberforce campaigned for over 40 years for the abolition of the slave trade and then slavery. Throughout throughout that time, his toughest battles were not with the slave traders themselves, or the French, or the Spanish, or Portuguese, or American governments, although all of those tried to stop him in one way or another. But his toughest battles were always fought in the British Houses of Parliament, often with his closest political friends. But notice also the techniques of Samballat's opposition. They mocked and they ridiculed Nehemiah to try and undermine the confidence that the Jews had in him. Nobody wants to follow a fool, do they? And secondly, they misrepresented him. They accused him of rebelling against the king, even though they knew that he wasn't. You see, Wilberforce was like that as well. Wilberforce was personally upright, he lived a moderate lifestyle. He gave away £200,000 per year in today's money, of his own fortune. And he was consistent always to the values that he held dear. And yet, in the contemporary newspapers of the time, he was always subject to ridicule and misrepresentation. He was ridiculed in cartoons as drinking and smoking and convorting with slave ladies uh, after the failure of one of his bills going through Parliament. In another cartoon, he was misrepresented as, as draw, drawn as a weather vane on top of a building, turning one way and that as the political winds changed, all because he was prepared to work with any political party in order to see his vision of no slavery come about. And when Nehemiah encounters opposition, he could have called upon those army officials and cavalry, he could have called them to come into view a little bit, but he doesn't. Instead, he appeals to God. In verse 20 he says, "'The God of heaven will give us success. "'We, his servants, will start rebuilding, "'but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem "'or any claim or historic right to it.'" Likewise, Wilberforce was convinced that he had been given his life's work, this vision of abolition of slavery by God. Over 45 years, he presented 12 bills to Parliament, and each one of them failed until 1833, when the 13th and final bill was passed just three days before Wilberforce died. When asked how he kept going in such circumstances, Wilberforce replied and said this. He said, Accustom yourself to look first to the dreadful consequences of failure. Then fix your eyes on the glorious prize which is before you. And when your strength begins to fail and your spirits are well-nigh exhausted, Let the animating view or vision rekindle your resolution and call forth in renewed vigour the fainting energies of your soul. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these uh, examples of people with great vision and a sense of being sent by you. We thank you for Nehemiah and all that we've learned from him and will learn over the next few weeks. We thank you for William Wilberforce and the fact that he had a vision which he never gave up and he achieved his ends because your hand was upon his work. Lord, may we all have a vision. In our daily lives, great visions, small visions, whatever it may be, but may your hand be upon them all, Lord. And when we're tempted to give up, may we call forth in renewed vigour the fainting energies of our souls. By your Spirit, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.